Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. My name is Mike Roth, and this is Story and Table, a personal and academic exploration of Christian ideologies and the systems that these ideologies sustain. Welcome to Story and Table. This is Season 1, Episode 6, An Atonement Story. In the last episode, A Salvation Story, I began by noticing that within Christianity, especially in the United States, the words gospel, salvation, and atonement are often used interchangeably. And yet, technically speaking, they're different. As a reminder, gospel is the declaration of good news. Salvation is being saved from a predicament and atonement is the reconciliation of estranged parties. With these technical differences in mind, this episode is about the story of atonement, the reconciliation of estranged parties. And for many Christians today, the estranged parties include humans and God. And so, the story of atonement goes like this. Because of original sin, humans are separated from God. The only way to reconcile this separation is by receiving forgiveness. And forgiveness occurs when a person believes in Jesus shed blood on a cross for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the story of atonement. Sinners are reconciled to God through forgiveness by believing in Jesus shed blood on a cross. Let's now take some time to consider the kind of table that this story of atonement sets in the lives of people. One feature of the table that this story of atonement sets is human separation from God. Human separation from God. That's a profound statement, isn't it? It's a statement grounded in disgust. I am separated from the divine because I am sinful, which is to say, because I am sullied, because I am defiled. Because I am blemished, besmirched, polluted, damaged, depraved, I am separated from God. Let that way of seeing and being sink in for a while. This is harmful ideology of the worst kind. And developmental theorists and psychologists agree. For example, the great Abraham Maslow, who studied human motivation and need. Ultimately, Maslow explained a hierarchy of five essential human needs in order to flourish, and one of those five hierarchies includes love and belonging. Love and belonging. And what happens when a person exists in a reality in which love and belonging lack? Well, the findings are not good. Negative self-talk, ongoing comparison with others, difficulty setting boundaries, continuous striving and likelier to exist in abusive relationships. In 1984, Father Thomas Keating invited a broad range of spiritual teachers from virtually all of the world's great wisdom traditions, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, indigenous, Islamic, to gather at St. Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. This came to be called the Snowmass Conference. One key goal for the leader's time at the Snowmass Conference was to investigate various points of agreement for which they found eight. 
one point of agreement that speaks directly against a feature of the table that the story of atonement sets reads, as long as the human condition is experienced as separate from ultimate reality, it is subject to ignorance and illusion, weakness and suffering. Unfortunately, it's the very story of atonement that many Christians tell today that encourages this ignorance and illusion. And the resulting weakness and suffering that it nurtures is utter tragedy in the lives of people. Of course, if you exist within the story of atonement, you're probably thinking, well, sure, this is difficult to believe, but it's in the Bible. It's the way things are. But as I've shared a couple times now in previous episodes, this way of thinking is based on a misinterpretation of the Bible's inciting incident in Genesis chapter 3, and it's a misreading of Romans chapter 5 verse 12. There is no such thing as original sin. Besides, when we move out of the modern framework of biblical inerrancy, which I encouraged in episode 3, a person no longer has to try and harmonize all of the scriptures. Instead, through a more ancient framework of the Bible, as an inspired text written by humans, we are freed to make accommodations for the spiritual and intellectual limitations of the Bible's human authors. And through this interpretive lens, we can appreciate how ancient people perceived a three-tiered universe in which God is up there in the sky, humans are here on earth, and the devil is down there in the earth. And so at one point in human existence, it was very easy to perceive of God at distance from humans. However, even this perspective is at odds with other perspectives within the Bible. For example, God with the patriarchs, God with Moses, God with the prophets, God with humans in Jesus, God with tax collectors and sinners in Jesus. God with that rascal Judas Iscariot in Jesus. And let us not forget about passages such as Acts chapter 17 verse 28, which reads, For in God we live and move and have our being. Or from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6, which reads, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And so, which is it? Is God with us, or is God separate from us? We should at least wonder, shouldn't we? Perhaps God is always and pervasively with us. Perhaps it's we humans who think that God is separate. And if that's closer to reality, which I believe it is, then atonement wouldn't actually be something that God needs. Rather, atonement would be something that we humans need. And I'll dig into that idea in just a bit. For now, here's another feature of the table that this story of atonement sets, which is God's frightening and strange need for blood to forgive sins. Of course, within Christianity, this whole idea comes out of the institution of Israel's sacrificial system in the last half of Exodus in the book of Leviticus. But again, through the lens of accommodation, was this God's need or Israel's thoughts about what God needs. I believe it's clear. This is all about what ancient Israel thought God needed. And from my studies, most, if not all, ancient people thought like this. They truly believed in the need to make sacrifices in order to satiate the divinities. Fortunately, most people no longer think like this. Even within Judaism, bloody sacrifices are no longer being offered to God at the Temple Mount. 
And yet many Christians today, especially in the United States, continue to think that God needs blood in order to forgive sins. They'll point to the second half of Exodus and the book of Leviticus for their proof. Furthermore, they'll point to the writings of Paul who excessively explains God's need for blood sacrifice to forgive sins. And this leads me to a very important question that seems obvious but isn't often talked about, which is, why? Why does Paul excessively explain God's need for blood sacrifices to forgive sins? Well, if you read the Bible through the modern framework of inerrancy, the answer is, because God said so. But if you're freed to read the Bible through the more ancient lens of accommodation, the answer is, because Paul was a Pharisee. And this changes everything. Because Pharisees were experts in the law who had a special interest in Israel's purity rituals. And so think about this with me. The Pharisee Paul has a vision of Jesus. The Pharisee Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. The Pharisee Paul needs to make sense of Jesus' death on a cross in light of how he sees the world through Israel's purity rituals. And this, you could say, was a very real predicament out of which Paul needed salvation. Therefore, throughout Paul's writings, we bear witness to him attempting to make sense of Jesus' death on the cross through his way of seeing the world, through Israel's purity rituals. And for Paul, this is the primary, not only, I'll get to that in just a bit, but for the converted Pharisee Paul, the primary meaning of atonement is the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, which saves him from his Pharisaical predicament, the need for sacrifices to please God. And it's this connection between his pharisaical need for sacrifices to please God and the crucifixion of Jesus, which results in Paul's experience of reconciliation with God. Now, does that mean that this is the primary meaning of atonement? Well, if you see the world through the lens of an ancient Pharisee and through Israel's purity rituals, then yes, this is a very helpful way of making sense of Jesus' crucifixion. But for the majority of us, of us who do not exist within Paul's worldview, this kind of meaning-making is both frightening and strange. As I shared in episode 5, the story of salvation, it's strange because God was forgiving people before the sacrifices were established in the second half of Exodus. It's strange because God was forgiving non-Israelite people and nations who weren't even a part of Israel's sacrificial system. And it's strange because Jesus himself was forgiving people before he died on a cross. And so for the majority of Christians today, we should be capable of imagining an economy of forgiveness through which God extends mercy again and again without the need for bloody sacrifice. And besides, God's need for blood being strange, it's also frightening. The thought that God needs blood to forgive sins is an ancient and barbaric way of understanding the divine. With this in mind, I'd like to retell an illustration that I told in the last episode with a little more elaboration. Let's say that a kid across the street intentionally throws a baseball through the front window of our house. We return home to find the window broken, we don't know how it happened or who did it, and so we just fix the window. Over the next few days, that kid starts to feel really bad 
and he eventually knocks on our door, and with tears in his eyes, he says, I am so, so sorry. And I can really feel how bad he feels, and so I really want to forgive him. And so what do I do? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? I tell him to wait. I go and kill my firstborn child. And then I come back to the front door to let him know that everything is okay. I can forgive him. But is everything truly okay? Because in order for me to forgive a kid, I had to become a murderer. Does that make any sense at all? No. And yet, this is the very story that many Christians today tell about atonement in order to receive forgiveness. Taking this illustration a little further, in this story, I am the one who represents God, and the kid is the one who represents humans asking God for forgiveness. About this, I'd like to ask a question. Is the kid, who represents humans, to truly believe that I am good and loving and worth worshiping? If I need the blood of my own child to forgive him? I certainly hope not. Because outside of a mindset that belongs to an ancient human, or to that of a Pharisee who sees life through purity rituals, this kind of thinking is utterly horrifying. And this brings me to a final feature of the table that the story of atonement sets, which is unreasonable thinking. It's unreasonable because... To think that God is separate from humans is an ancient, three-tiered way of seeing the world. It's unreasonable because to think that God is separate from humans is a failure to acknowledge other passages in the Bible that explain God is above all and through all and in all. It's unreasonable because to think that God needs blood to forgive sins is an ancient, uniquely pharisaical Paul way of seeing the world. And it's unreasonable because a God who needs the blood of a crucified and tortured Jesus to forgive the sins of humans makes no sense to a modern, civilized people. To this last point, I imagine some Christians, especially in the United States, responding, yeah, but more important than being a modern, civilized people is being a Christian people. Or, yeah, but more important than being a modern, civilized people is being a people of the Bible. And this response comes from a very particular story of atonement that misses the biblical and historical story of atonement in its fullness, which I'll now tell. But first, some necessary church history and biblical studies. Throughout church history, there has been an interesting evolution regarding who atonement is for. Here's what I mean. Over the centuries, some Christians have thought that atonement is primarily for God. However, other Christians have thought that atonement is primarily for humans. And yet, others have thought that atonement is primarily for the devil. Seriously, the earliest understanding of atonement in church history is that it was for the devil. This perspective is called Christus Victor. According to this theory, Christ, Christus Victor, fights against and triumphs over the evil powers of this world, under which humankind is in bondage and suffering. About this, 3rd century church father Irenaeus writes, For he, Jesus, fought and conquered, for he was man contending for the fathers, and through obedience doing away with disobedience completely, for he bound the strong man, Satan, and set free the weak. And from 5th century monk and theologian Tyrannius Rufinus, 
For the object of that mystery of the Incarnation which we expound just now was that the divine virtue of the Son of God, as though it were a hook concealed beneath the form and fashion of human flesh, might lure on the prince of this world, Satan, to a conflict to whom offering his flesh as bait, his divinity underneath might catch him and hold him fast with its hook through the shedding of his immaculate blood. As wild as this perspective may seem, it's important for modern Christians to recognize that there was a time early in church history during which people like Irenaeus and Rufinus and the majority of their contemporaries sincerely believed that humankind was in literal bondage to Satan, which kept them from relationship with the divine. For this reason, in their minds, atonement, the reconciliation of God and humans, occurred through an actual fight during which Jesus' death became bait that caught Satan and held him fast with its hook thereby freeing humans to enter into relationship with God. Now, if you think that's strange, you're not alone. By the 11th century, human consciousness had developed to a point at which this way of thinking became absurd. And so Anselm of Canterbury wrote, supposing that the devil or man were his own master or belonged to someone other than God, or was permanently in the power of someone other than God, then perhaps one could justly speak in those terms. Anselm therefore rejects a Satanward atonement, and he proposes a Godward atonement out of which the theory of satisfaction rises. According to the theory of satisfaction, atonement is directed toward God because humans are depraved and in debt, cannot repay their debt, and are in need of making satisfaction to God which is made by Jesus shed blood on a cross. Not only did this theory of satisfaction get a lot of support from the writings of Paul, but it was a unique solution to human consciousness throughout the 9th to 15th centuries, during which the system of feudalism, a structure in which debt in exchange for services, flourished. As a result, atonement as satisfaction became the prominent perspective on atonement during the Reformation, and it remains the primary focus of atonement in most Protestant churches to this day. Now, here's where things begin to get really interesting. Around the same time as Anselm's theory of satisfaction, there was Peter Aberlard, who, like Anselm, couldn't believe in a Satan word atonement. He thought it was absurd. And yet, having the mind of a theologian, but the soul of a poet, he couldn't bring himself to believe in Anselm's Godward atonement either. Aberlard thought satisfaction atonement was absurd as well. And so he proposed a humanward atonement called humanistic theory. According to humanistic theory, Jesus' death on the cross demonstrates the amazing depths of God's love for humanity. And while this theory didn't catch on at the time outside of the mystics, it's slowly becoming a central focus on atonement today as Anselm's satisfaction theory begins to crack and crumble in the lives of humans in the 21st century. With all of this in mind, you may now be wondering, which one is it? Is atonement for the devil? Is atonement for God? Or is atonement for humans? Well, the answer that church history gives us is, Atonement has been for all three, the devil, God, and humans. 
more so, atonement's focus, whether it be for the devil, God, or humans, has, from the beginning, been based on human consciousness. In the first millennia CE, the majority of humans really believed that they needed rescue from the devil through Jesus' broken body as bait that hooked him in order to be freed to enter into relationship with God. In the second millennia CE, the majority of humans really believed that they needed rescue from the debt of sin through Jesus' shed blood on a cross in order to be in relationship with God. And as we enter into the third millennia CE, more and more humans are finding these first two theories of atonement to be absurd. And there appears to be a growing need for an atonement in which Jesus' crucifixion reveals divine solidarity with all who suffer, as well as divine love for every person. In other words, we humans living today in the 21st century are in desperate need of a God who is with us and for us, proven by divine love poured out. Now, if you abide within the first story of atonement that I shared, you may want to reply to this brief history lesson by saying, so what? That's history. What does the Bible say? And the answer is, the Bible supports all three theories of atonement. For example, the Bible supports an atonement that's for the devil, Revelation chapter 12. And the Bible supports an atonement that's for God, Romans chapter 3. And the Bible supports an atonement that's for humans, Romans chapter 5. With all of this information in mind, here's a brief summary of atonement. First, atonement is the reconciliation of estranged parties. Second, church history reveals an evolution in the direction of atonement depending on human consciousness, sometimes devil word, sometimes God word, and sometimes human word. And third, the Bible supports all three historical emphases on atonement. I will now share an honest, historical, and biblical story of atonement, which goes like this. Atonement is the important Christian work of reconciling all things by making meaning of Jesus' death on a cross. I'd like to tell that story one more time. Atonement is the important Christian work of reconciling all things by making meaning of Jesus' death on a cross. Let's take some time to consider the kind of table that this story of atonement sets in the lives of people. One feature is ongoing relevance. In the first millennia CE, humans truly needed an atonement that helped to free them from a consciousness in which their very lives were in bondage to Satan. And the story of Jesus' death on a cross was used to powerfully free humans from Satan so that they could be reconciled to God. In the second millennia CE, humans truly needed an atonement that helped to free them from a conscience in which their very lives were in the debt of sin. And the story of Jesus' death on a cross was used to powerfully free humans from the debt of sin so that they could be reconciled to God. And as we continue forward into this third millennia CE, many humans are needing an atonement to help free them from a consciousness in which they are depraved and separated from God. Side note, let us not miss the irony that this current need is the result of Christian storytelling on atonement from the previous millennia. 
today, especially in the United States. People desperately need a story that powerfully proves God's extravagant love for them and presence within them. Because baked into our way of being is a deeply embedded belief in God's distance from us as a result of our depravity. And this brings me to a second feature of the table that this story of atonement sets, which is agency. Thinking back to some of the church history that I shared, Anselm despised the idea of needing to be freed from the devil because he didn't think that he was in bondage to the devil. What Anselm needed was forgiveness for the debt of sin. And so he emphasized that which he needed, and it helped to reconcile him to God. Similarly, Anselm's contemporary, Aberlard, also despised the idea of needing to be freed from the devil, but he also despised the idea of needing to be freed from the debt of sin through blood. What Aberlard needed was proof of divine love, and so he emphasized that which he needed, and it helped to reconcile him to God. I'm not sure what stories you've been told throughout your life, and so I'm not sure how those stories have shaped your consciousness regarding estrangement from God, or estrangement from yourself, or estrangement from others. My sincere hope for your life is that Jesus' death on a cross can be used to help nurture reconciliation in ways that you need. An incredible example of this atonement work is found in the life and writings of the extraordinary theologian James Cone. In his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, he writes, I accept Dolores Williams' rejection of theories of atonement as found in the Western theological tradition and in the uncritical proclamation of the cross in many black churches. I find nothing redemptive about suffering in itself. The gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story of God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. For Cohn, a black man who lived his life in the United States throughout the 20th century, a theory of atonement in which God kills his own son on a tree was not good news. It was, in fact, horrifying news. And so, rejecting Anselm's atonement and the primary focus of atonement in Protestant Christianity, especially in the United States, Cohn emphasized divine solidarity with those who suffer, especially those who suffer by being lynched on trees. And it's this divine solidarity that brought Cone and many other black Christians throughout the 20th century a deep and abiding sense of God's presence with them as they endured racism and murder, sometimes murder by lynching on trees. A final feature of the table that this story of atonement sets is new frontiers. Like the Apostle Paul, like Anselm, like Aberlard, and like James Cone, this historical and biblical story of atonement invites us to consider new ways in which Jesus' death on a cross can be used to reconcile estranged parties that have yet to be emphasized or considered in Christian thought. For me, one area that stands out as desperately needed today is the reconciliation of races that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2, which reads, He, Jesus, has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, 
and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Of course, Paul has in mind Jews and Gentiles here, but I think we can rightly extend this idea of two races to include any two kinds of people or groups of people who are at times divided, such as black and white people, or queer and straight people, or rich and poor people, or documented and undocumented people, or Christian and non-Christian people, or you-fill-in-the-blank people. Unfortunately, many of these divisions and the resulting violence and harm that these divisions have caused are due to Christian storytelling. But to be clear, this is at odds with a historical and biblical story of atonement, which is supposed to make meaning of Jesus' death on a cross to accomplish the beautiful and desperately needed work of reconciling people who experience hostility due to difference. And so, if your story of atonement increases estrangement due to difference, or if your story of atonement intensifies alienation due to difference, please, please let that story of atonement die. And in its place, let rise a story of atonement that is culturally relevant, profoundly personal, and intentionally good carving out new frontiers in which the death of Jesus is able to help manifest desperately needed reconciliation today. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. May your life be filled with good stories that set loving tables around which you are freed and inspired to flourish. Thanks for listening to Story and Table. If you find this podcast worthwhile, thought-provoking, or encouraging, will you share about it with your friends and family? And if you don't already support the work of Pearl Church, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org.